What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. When I was first learning it, I studied with a uh, prince of the last Chinese imperial dynasty, the Qing dynasty. And he said, well, you have to memorize this text. And I said, well, Lao Shi, a teacher, I'm an American. We don't memorize very much anymore. And he said, no, no, it's only because you don't know how to memorize. And so he said, you memorize like this. And he chanted the text. And sure enough, if you treat the text like a song to sing, so to speak, it's easy to memorize. It goes uh, something like this. My name is Peter Boy. I teach Chinese history at Harvard. So when I asked you to think about a book that's changed history in significant ways, you volunteered this book. Tell us about The Great Learning and why it came to mind. Well, The Great Learning is, is one of what's called the, the four books in the later Confucian tradition. Um, it's not very long. The main text is only around 205 Chinese characters. So translated, it might come to four or 500 words in English. And then there is a series of chapters which elaborate on it or comment on that main text. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about books that change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I speak to a scholar about one book that changed the course of history. In this episode, I sat down with Peter Boll to talk about The Great Learning, an ancient Chinese text that continues to shape the lives of more than a billion people. Nobody knows exactly who wrote The Great Learning, but it reflects the teachings of Confucius, and it likely first appeared in the Confucian Book of Rites around 2,000 years ago. This text begins with a famous set of phrases. It says, The way of great learning lies in um, illuminating or illustrating one's luminous virtue by being one or familiar with the people and ending up in the highest good. It's a text that's interesting particularly because in the 11th and 12th century, when it's pulled out of another one of the Confucian classics called the Book of Rites, um, by that point, the text has been around already for at least a thousand years. And it's pulled out and, and they start to focus on this text and another text or two in particular and say, this really is, has fundamental ideas for us today. A thousand years had passed by the time these Neo-Confucian scholars picked up the great learning. Chinese culture had changed in major ways. New technologies and institutions had emerged, culture had evolved, and dynasties had come and gone. So the 11th and 12th century Neo-Confucian scholars drew new meanings from the ancient text. To illustrate that point, 
that the meaning changes. In the original, it's fairly clear that the person who was being addressed was the ruler. This was a book that says to the ruler, you should show your, your virtue. You should act in a certain way towards the common people, and you should bring about the highest good. It was about rulers and government. But as it gets interpreted in the 11th and 12th centuries, it comes to mean how everybody who learns should be. And it becomes a text for everyone that says everyone has the right to participate, at least at an intellectual level, in the process of governing. So it sounds like in some ways it's collapsing the distinction between upper and lower classes. Absolutely. Their aspirations. Or between what we might say between people who have formal political power and people who are engaged in learning and culture but don't have formal political positions. These interpreters knew what they were doing. They wanted to collapse the distinctions between those with formal political power and those without and to draw a straight line from the student to the governmental leaders. Learning, they argued, was what gave a person power. The text makes three main points. First, you have to have some virtue that you let others see. Second, you have to have a relationship with the people. The 11th and 12th century interpreters understood that to mean that you had to change or transform the people. The third is you have to have a sense of your ultimate goals, the highest good, whatever that's going to mean. But then it goes on and says, you know, it's only if you know your goal, the highest good, it's only if you know where you're going to stop that you actually can start to really stabilize your mind and, and, and focus. And it's only then that you can go through a process that leads to, to understanding. And in some sense, what this text is saying is there's an order to things. There are things that are more fundamental that you have to do first and that have consequences later. Well, what are those? And that's the core of the text, the most important part are called the, the ba tiao mu in Chinese, or the eight steps. These eight steps lay out the order of events, starting with the highest good. If someone's aim is to manifest their virtue, they have to first organize their state. If they want to organize their state, they have to organize their family. But to organize their family, they have to cultivate themselves. To cultivate themselves, they have to make their heart and mind correct. To make their heart and mind correct, they have to make their will sincere. If they want to make their will sincere, they have to first attain knowledge. And attaining knowledge depended on a phrase that the Neo-Confucian interpreters translated as investigating things. So that vision, then, is a vision that connects the cultivation of the self with social responsibility, with political responsibility, and says all these things are connected. Individuals hold great power. In this way, the focus is on the individual. But the purpose of self-cultivation goes beyond the individual. It's not self-cultivation for its own sake. Sometimes in, uh, for my generation, when you start to get the appearance of gurus and sort of self-help seminars and things like that, it was all about me and me feeling good about myself. Well, the, the great learning isn't about that. The great learning says, no, no, you are learning in order to understand something and understanding it leads you to a way of behaving and acting on others in family and in government and ultimately bringing peace to the world. These things should be connected. Does everyone connect them? No. Does everyone necessarily end up serving in government? No. But everyone can cultivate themselves. As the final line goes, From the Son of Heaven down to the common person. 
everyone takes the cultivation of the self as the fundamental. And that's what this great learning is about. In other words, if every person from the common man to the leaders in government commits to education, then the city, the country, and the world will be in harmony. Now, the reality is that no Chinese dynasty lasted for more than 250, 300 years. But there certainly was a conviction that if people and rulers would devote themselves to learning, that they could make it work. This approach to governing was different than most. You know, China was unique in world history. From the 11th century, actually late 10th century on, its governing elite was composed of people who were learned. There's a, an exception to that. An exception to that is under the Mongols, because many of the Mongols were illiterate, and uh, yet they had to employ literate people to govern. But when the Jesuit missionary Matteo Ricci goes to China in the 16th century, he writes in his account of the country he's in, he says, you know, this is a country where philosophers are kings. Now, who said philosophers are kings? Plato. That's the perfect world, right? He doesn't see military elites. He doesn't see feudal lords. He sees literati. And then he, he backtracks and says, well, he says, in fact, of course, the emperor is not a philosopher, but he's surrounded by philosophers. He's surrounded by people who learn. And that is one of the great achievements of Chinese civilization, to believe that the best kind of government is a government which is led by people who are there by virtue of their merit, and their merit is measured by their learning. Let's talk a little bit more about its enduring influence. Um, how did this book change the world? It changes the people, thus it gives us a China. Uh, it gives us a China that's unified. It gives us a China that's powerful and a China that believes that education makes the difference. Right? Education is the key to your future as an individual, but also to the future of a country. This attitude still resonates today, despite the anti-intellectualism of the mid-20th century cultural revolution. China is a country that has multiplied the number of college students by at least 10 times in the last 20 years. And so the number of learned people in China, one could say, is approaching the size of the American population. Understanding the legacy of the great learning can help to upend certain assumptions that people from America and China have about each other and themselves. To illustrate these assumptions, Professor Bowl tells a story. I was in China, and I was with a bunch of my graduate students and Chinese colleagues with their students, and we were doing some, some research on local society and visiting old villages, and we got stuck on the road. And I said to the driver, I said, well, why don't we get out, lighten the load, we all get off, and we push the bus. And he said, no, that won't work. And I said, shouldn't we try? And he said, no, no, that won't work. And so after another 10 minutes just sitting there, I said, we're going to try this. And I got up and I said, in English and then in Chinese, I said, this is the problem. We're going to all get off the bus and we're going to push it. And all the American students immediately got up off the bus. And all the Chinese students, my Chinese colleagues, just sat there, even though I had said this in Chinese too. And I heard one of the Chinese colleagues say to another, look at those Americans. Their leader says, gives them one command, and off they go. They just obey <laughs> like that. Um, and then I had to go row by row and explain to each row of people what we were doing and why and ask them if they would be so kind as to get off the bus and help. And then we pushed it and we got out of the, out of the rut. 
The next day, I, I see my friend who had said this, look at those Americans and how they behave. And I said to him, what is it you admire about America? Ah, he said, what I admire about America is you have no individuality. You all obey rules all the time. You're all alike. We Chinese, we're too individualistic. We need to learn more from you. We need to be more like you and get rid of some of our individuality and become more collective. Now, I thought that was a really, really interesting comment for him to make because what he saw and what we saw not always the same. But if you think about it, we live in a society where we have rules and there's so much part of our lives we don't pay attention to them. We accept them all the time. China is much more of a negotiated place. Everybody has to agree with somebody else. You have to negotiate everything. And in some ways, the great learning fits that too, because the great learning says, no, you individual must have your understanding of things. You must respond to the world. You must bring your understanding of what's conducive to unity, but it's still concerned with unity. It's still an ideal. And so my friend who saw Americans as admirable because they were so collectivist and so uniform and so lacking in individuality was in some sense articulating this desire for unity that we find at the basis of the great learning. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.